uh, a little introduction first. Uh, I'm, uh, I graduated from Loma Linda University in 1988 uh, with a doctorate of public health and a master's of uh, nutrition and uh, have been on the clinical faculty for a while on the full-time faculty at the School of Public Health for the last 30 years, as well as uh, a clinical assistant professor for the School of Medicine uh, at Loma Linda University. Uh, I've had the privilege to be a medical missionary for 14 years on the island of Guam, <clears throat> where I first became exposed to the challenges of, of severe dementias, where on the island of Guam, there is a, a illness, a, a neurologic illness called lytical bodig, which is a combination of Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and uh, ALS. And so it's a, a, a just a, a horrible disease. And at the time, I, I wasn't emphasizing uh, what I currently emphasize in my practice, which is this topic of helping individuals who already have been diagnosed with some level of cognitive decline and finding finding natural and simple remedies uh, to address that, which we will be covering in detail today. Uh, but um, without realizing it, I was actually helping people with those conditions because my emphasis was in reversing insulin resistance, was in early detection of prediabetes and diabetes, and, uh, and uh, basically uh, reversing uh, the underlying risk factors, the, the primary risk factor for dementia, especially of the Alzheimer's type, is insulin resistance. That's the most common across the board. So, um, so uh, over the last 12 years, I've been practicing in Temecula, California. Um, uh, for a few years, I, I practiced with a large family medical group called the Rancho Family Medical Group. And, and then for the last 10 years, I've been in my own private practice uh, uh, basically working uh, virtually with many patients around the country. So uh, a couple quick statistics. Here on this slide, you see that out of the 318 million individuals that lived in the United States in 2012, it was fully expected that about 45 million would, uh, individuals would eventually go on to develop Alzheimer's disease. Uh, we know that by 2050, the worldwide uh, burden of Alzheimer's will be over 160 million uh, in, individuals. Uh, and then the top three causes of premature death in the United States is actually known to uh, be cardiovascular, cancer, and number three, if you look at the statistics properly, that Alzheimer's is actually the number three leading cause of premature uh, death in the United States. Now, other countries around the world, like in the UK, for instance, in elderly women, the number one cause of premature death is Alzheimer's. And so I believe this is becoming a, a, a worse and worse phenomena based on the literature over the last decade. And, um, and we basically don't have a medical system developed to properly address these underlying issues. But I've had the privilege to present through the American College of Lifestyle Medicine uh, several years back, uh, both in a plenary session uh, and in a three-hour workshop for physicians, the, these concepts. And so in 2018, um, this, this paper that was published, that was written by, uh, by Paulina Shetty and myself, 
on the really uh, an, uh, a, a write-up on the presentations that I'd previously given with the American College of Lifestyle Medicine uh, and published in the American Journal of Lifestyle Medicine. So there is a, a lot of information. If this is, so this is in public uh, peer-reviewed literature. And so that's available for you. In addition, I had the privilege of collaborating with Dr. Dale Bredesen, uh, who's an eminent neurologist who have, uh, uh, basically published a book, uh, The End of Alzheimer's, and has trained thousands of physicians in a, a comprehensive strategy on how we evaluate the underlying triggers and risk factors for Alzheimer's and not only prevent cognitive decline, but help people who already have cognitive decline, either in the subject cognitive impairment category or in the mild cognitive impairment category, or who already have different levels of Alzheimer's. And so I had the privilege to share um, um, about 10 case studies in this paper of 100 patients that had documented reversal of cognitive decline. So these were all individuals that either had mild cognitive impairment or various levels of Alzheimer's disease. So this is not just an idea. Uh, this is something that is, um, there's more and more evidence that is being published and documented in case study reviews. Uh, and in this case, in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease and Parkinson's. So so that, so that is available. Also, I've had the privilege, and all those, by the way, are available on the Vimeo On Demand. The, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine meetings of the past are available on Vimeo On Demand. So you can just search for those lectures uh, and access those. Uh, also, I've had the privilege of doing a 15-hour uh, comprehensive series uh, uh, for health professionals and patients alike uh, on this topic, and it, it, is, it is entitled Reignite Recognition, Restoring Optimal Memory. So that's also available on Vimeo On Demand. Then I, I wrote this book, Memory Makeover, specifically to give hope, okay? And in that book, I, I started out with my very first chapter quoting uh, these, these famous uh, literary lines by Charles Dickens in the book, A Tale of Two Cities, which to me best describes the current, uh, the state of, um, of healthcare in, in, in medicine as it relates to this whole topic of dealing with Alzheimer's. There's a, there's a lot of differing opinions out there about what is possible. You just heard two wonderful presentations by Dr. Charles Zeno Marcel, uh, earlier today, and uh, Dr. Uh, Roger Schwelt, uh, who, uh, who gave excellent presentations on the applications of lifestyle medicine and how they can powerfully impact uh, health and cognitive function directly. And so um, uh, as I was listening to Dr. Roger Schwelt, I realized that, that, uh, that one of the number one things that we can do for individuals who have cognitive decline. The number one lifestyle intervention group of strategies that we can, uh, that we can encourage people to follow if they have cognitive decline are things that improve the immune system. 
everything that Dr. Tr uh, uh, Roger Schwell talked about in terms of enhancing the innate immune system and enhancing the immune system early in infections and, and doing these natural remedies, that, that is a critical, uh, an essential element of optimizing uh, the ability to uh, address the underlying triggers of cognitive decline. So Alzheimer's is very much in many respects also it's an inflammatory disease, and it is an infectious disease as well. Not in every case, of course, but there's a, there's a very powerful element that promotes neuropathology in Alzheimer's that, that relates to a weakened immune system. And, and in fact, in fact the, the attempt of the brain to deal with uh, infections, that's why beta amyloid is produced in large numbers as an attempt to actually fight the infection. It's actually a good thing to produce beta amyloid under those scenarios. And so our goal is not to get rid of beta amyloid. Our goal is to decrease the need to produce excessive beta amyloid that becomes oxidized and then creates the beta amyloid plaques that destroy cognitive function. So uh, we're we're going to be outlining that more in a little bit. So let me let me uh, uh, share this quote with you uh, uh, from from Charles Dickens in the Tale of Two Cities. As a and think of it as I'm reading it, the, st the current state of affairs within within medicine in many of these topics that we're dealing with, much of chronic disease, there is there 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 are few answers, and the and the answers that that conventional medicine has for chronic disease are really just treating the symptoms and not getting really to the core. So lifestyle medicine, the natural remedies are really the only effective solution to these chronic diseases. So um, uh, let me read the quote. It was the best of times, it was is the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. You know, we have, uh, we have access to more research today and the, the knowledge about how the body works and ever before, and yet it's still right now the age of foolishness. It's the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. There's, there's a lot of, there's all this research that's available that, that we could take advantage of in dealing with the underlying risk factors for Alzheimer's. And yet most clinicians not taking the time to look at that research are, are they basically don't believe don't believe in, in this information because they think I would have learned it in medical school if it was that important. It was a season of light. It was a season of darkness. Where, where do we choose to be on that? And then ultimately it was a spring of hope. Uh, it was the winter of despair. So, so the challenge for each of us is are we as health professionals is what side of this are we going to be on? Are we, are we going to be uh, uh, perpetuators of, of, of this age of foolishness, of incredulity, uh, the season of darkness or the winter of despair. Uh, I have a colleague of mine who's a, a physician who uh, actually trains gerontologists at, at a university level in, in Northern California. He, he said to me, he said, Wes, he says, um, you know what the three most important words I use to train my residents who, uh, as I trained them to, to uh, diagnose Alzheimer's disease? And I said, no, what, what are those three words? And, and the three words are this, 
I'm so sorry. And he said to me that in our current system that I'm in, that's basically the answer to Alzheimer's. There is, there is no answer. There's, I'm so sorry that, you know, that the diagnosis is essentially a death sentence, not just in terms of there's nothing that we can do, but it, it's a sentence that leads to darkness and, and leads to despair. It destroys hope in the, in the individual patient. So we don't want to be on that side. And here, this was a physician that, that knows actually how to reverse that, but he was in a, in a medical system that didn't really allow him to, to approach uh, the, the condition from that perspective. It's very, very sad. So I, I want to be on the side of, no, this is the best of times. We have this great wisdom, this great amount of knowledge available to us today. We have, we're in a season of light, and it is the spring of hope. And so that was the reason I wrote the book, Memory Makeover, uh, to help patients and health professionals alike see what is actually uh, possible. Now, um, let, me, let me tell you, let me share with you a quote from the book, The Desire of Ages. Okay? Uh, this, this book that I've had all my life, The Desire of Ages, basically a book uh, written about the life of Christ, of Jesus Christ. And I tell you, I, there's, there's hardly a page in this book that doesn't have some uh, underlining in it. And, um, and I, want, I want to read to you this section. This is, this is my, uh, I call it my lifestyle medicine call to action, how I practice and why I do what I do uh, and how I approach my patients and how I talk to my patients who have, who have uh, various concerns. And, and, and so as I read this quotation, think about it in terms, of, in terms of how we apply these principles analogously to dealing with our patients on an everyday level. And so this is, this is actually a statement from the chapter, The Voice in the Wilderness, basic in the book, The Desire of Ages, which is talking about the life and, and, and uh, activities of John the Baptist. He was he was, a, he was a forerunner of Christ. He was the one that was challenged uh, and, and prepared by God in the Holy Spirit to prepare the way for the first coming of Jesus Christ. Well, you and I are, are a type of John the Baptist. We, we have been challenged to prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus. And so think of, think of this statement as how it applies to you directly. Uh, so speaking of John the Baptist, Ellen G. White writes, he saw his people deceived, self-satisfied, and asleep in their sins. So we're, we're looking at our patients who, you know, maybe they're coming to us because they, they just want medicine for their diabetes. They just, they just want a simple solution uh, for their cognitive decline. They want that drug, which we know in that case has has basically really no ultimate impact on the progression of the disease. We know that, that the diabetes medicines, uh, uh, in many studies, the biggest studies done, actually increase risk for premature death. They may very effectively lower blood sugars, but at what cost? Uh, Mayo Clinic did a major study on that. It says, we got to get 
past just treating blood sugar levels and diabetic because that's not getting the job done. We need to address the underlying risk factors. We need to deal with the insulin resistance and so forth. And so, so our patients are literally asleep in their conditions. They're, they're not aware of the danger that is, that is lurking within their body from an internal medicine perspective. And our job is to, to, to make sure they know what their actual risk is. So John the Baptist longed to rouse them to a holier life. So our job should be to passionately encourage them, wake them up to, to a healthier life, a, a holier life, which is a life that brings salvation to, 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 uh, for a spiritual salvation, certainly, but also physical salvation. It's, it's a solution to their problems. The message, Ellen White goes on, that God had given him, John the Baptist to bear, was designed to startle them from their lethargy. And so when I talk to a patient, okay, uh, my, my goal is to not scare them, but, but to make them keenly aware of their risk, to not, not, uh, to, to not just kind of, um, you know, just say, well, you know, we'll take care of this, we'll help you with this. I want them to know the severity of their condition and where this is going. Maybe they have a mild cognitive impairment and, and they're just concerned about word finding. They, they, they can't think of that name or that word, uh, but they, they, they are ideas that, well, they, that's not the end of the world, uh, but that's just the beginning. Okay, they, They're actually, if they don't address the underlying cause of that problem, they could find themselves years later walking into the restroom and not even remembering how to have a bowel movement. That's how serious this is. That's how I talk to some of my patients to help them understand where this is really headed so that they can resolve in their hearts to actually do something about it. Okay. Now, not wait, not wait till later, not wait for the new medicine that that's going to cure this because there is no one medicine that's going to cure Alzheimer's. Absolutely not. Never going to happen. Why? Because there's way too many underlying risk factors. There's, there's dozens and dozens and dozens of different pathophysiologic mechanisms going on in, in cognitive decline in Alzheimer's. So no one medicine is ever going to treat this. We need to understand all the risk factors. Okay. And then the message that God had given him was designed to startle them from their lethargy and then cause them to tremble because of their great wickedness. And so the, uh, the analogously here, we, it would cause them to be be very aware of their uh, of their condition, how their condition is going to lead to more and more severe illness. Yeah, but 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 we have hope for them, and so um, and so the this quote ends by saying, "Before the seed of the gospel could find lodgment, the soil of the heart must be broken up." Isn't that beautiful? Uh, before they would seek healing from Jesus, they must be awakened from the dangers, from the wounds of sin. So before somebody is going to actually seek to apply any strategies that we recommend to them, okay, they must really be awakened uh, uh, to their danger from the wounds of the choices that they have been making over their lifetime, the, the, more, uh, the, the, the choices, the exposures that they have allowed themselves to be exposed to and how that dramatically alters genetic expression in a harmful way. And they're not going to change what they eat. They're not going to change what they do. Uh, they're, they're, they're not going to seek to make better choices unless they have 
uh, an awareness of the danger, a, a keen awareness of the danger, and secondly, an awareness that this is reversible, that this is that there is hope. There's things that can be do can be done for each of these. So, so that's my that's what drives me. This quote from pages 103 and 104 from the book, The Desire of Ages, I, I think is a powerful. Now, other things that motivate me is, is, is I work with my patients and I tell them uh, the, uh, the, the wonderful, endearing words of the Apostle John, who says, Beloved, I wish above all things that you would prosper and be in good health, even as your soul prospers. God wants us to be healthy. I, you know, I pray with every patient, but I don't do it at the beginning of the, of the consultation. I spend an hour with every patient um, because that you got to spend a lot of time in lifestyle medicine, at least if you're doing that as a specialty, because uh, there's so much to address. Uh, uh, but especially if I don't know the patient, I don't know their background, I don't know their interests or their openness to spirituality. My first job is to get to know them, is to is to show them that I care, show them that I, I want what's best for them. And once I've established a relationship with them towards the end of that first visit, I'll ask them, I said, you know what? I want what's best for you. And I really believe in the power of prayer. Would you allow me to pray for you right now? And we know that the spiritual principle is this. If, if somebody gives us permission to pray for them, that opens up heaven's blessings for them in ways that otherwise would never be open. Okay, that's the, 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 the reality of the spiritual warfare is that we need to ask permission. Okay, we don't just pray for them. We ask permission. We intercede on their behalf with their permission. That opens up the doorways for heaven, uh, angels, and for the Holy Spirit to impress upon their minds in ways that otherwise could not happen. So God wants what's best for us. Um, and then uh, from the book of Jeremiah, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. Our job as clinicians, as health professionals, is to give hope, okay? Not false hopes, but hope based on good evidence that's been published in medical journals, hope based on the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have access to, hope based on helping them understand the, the, the power that, that they can access, okay, if they simply ask for it. So, so that's, that's the, and, and what really motivated me as a, as a young man, as a teenager, learning uh, about health was this book. If this book by far is the most powerful lifestyle medicine textbook ever written. The ministry of healing, the ministry of, of healing of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and, and this, this book outlines the broadest, most holistic perspective on natural healing that doesn't just look at, at diet and exercise and water and all the things we normally think of in terms of the eight natural remedies, but it looks at uh, family life. It looks at how, how we communicate one to another. It, it looks at the questions of forgiveness. Have, have we accepted forgiveness? Have we, have we given forgiveness to others? Those are the most powerful healing agencies uh, biochemically that we can access in our body is, is getting the peace that Dr. Charles, uh, Zeno Charles Marcel mentioned this morning, the peace that, that gives that sense of shalom, right? That, 
that optimal health, that optimal wellness that can only come from having a forgiving spirit and, and, and understanding what it means to accept the forgiveness from God. So, so there's, a, there's a quotation that I want to share from, from the Ministry of Healing that really sets the stage for the, the perspectives that we're presenting on this weekend. And, and let me just read this to you. The only hope of better things to come is in the education of, of uh, people in the right principles. Let physicians teach the people that restorative power is not in drugs, but in nature. This is not anti-drug. This is just saying that what works is making sure that we address the underlying principles. Disease is an effort of nature to free the system from conditions that result from a violation of the laws of life. This is a complete different definition of, of disease. It's a it's effort of nature to free the system from conditions that result from a violation of the laws of health. So I mentioned earlier that beta amyloid, for instance, uh, well known to be strongly associated with cognitive decline in Alzheimer's disease, that beta amyloid is actually produced as an effort of nature of the body, of the innate immune system of the brain to free the system the brain of conditions that result from the violation of laws of life. So the answer isn't to get rid of beta amyloid. The answer is to address the underlying causes uh, that, that force the, the brain to produce excessive amounts of beta amyloid. Let's look at some genetic factors. Some pe many people have said in the past, and many well-meaning doctors and professors are saying Alzheimer's is a genetic condition. Okay, and, and therefore the implication is nothing can be done about it because it's hardwired into the human body at a genetic level. Um, and, and, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. Okay, if we've learned anything from the Human Genome Project concluded in 2003, that genes do not determine our health for the most part, they give us clues of what to do. So actually doing genetic studies, actually broad-based genetic studies on patients, which I recommend to every patient, uh, simple things like through Ancestry.com or 23andMe.com, where you can, and, and by reading instructions on my website, you can see how to access information from those uh, genetic ancestral studies to, to dramatically increase your awareness of what you can do as an individual, right? Genomic medicine has really uh, ushered in a new era of medicine called personalized care. No longer do we need to treat people as a statistic, okay? Uh, now we treat people based on their individuality uh, and based on their the what kind of genetic mutations they carry, which tell us specifically what to do. You see, see genetic mutations, once we know where the mutation is, we know precisely what enzyme and in what biochemical uh, pathway is being influenced uh, uh, for, for, uh, for problems with leading to disease. By, in, in biochemistry, we know those biochemical pathways. We know precisely how those enzymes work. We know precisely what cofactors are used, are, are necessary for those enzymes to, to work properly. If those enzymes uh, are based on a mutated gene, their conformational structure has been altered, which means their function is altered, which means we need to upregulate the cofactors at minimum that relate to function of the enzyme. So genetics gives us specific clues. 
learning more about what mutations we each carry individually gives us specific guidance as to what to do about the condition and how to limit risk factors specifically. So, so the first gene that we look about, you know, Plato said, know thyself. Well, the ApoE4 gene uh, is a well-known gene that increases risk. It is not deterministic. It increases risk for Alzheimer's disease. And that's why we need to figure out in people who have the AP, APOE4 mutation are, have, all, have so much more to gain by understanding what their individual risk factors are. And so the key is figuring out where are all the risk factors dealing with those properly to greatly minimize the negative effect of that, of that gene mutation. We know from many studies that, that the average age uh, where the risk of developing Alzheimer's is close to 50% is around age 84, 85. And that's if you don't have the mutation to the APOE uh, allele. Okay, so if you're APOE, uh, APOE33, in other words, you got a copy of the normal uh, allele variant from both parents, then Alzheimer's is, uh, is delayed and tends to occur at a rate of 40 to 50% in, in 84 plus year olds, right? If you have one copy of the APOE4 allele from one of your parents and one and the other copy is the normal variant, that, that the age of onset of uh, Alzheimer's disease uh, drops almost 10 years to age 75. If you have two copies of the allele, by the way, 70 million Americans have one copy, 7 million Americans have two copies, okay? And of course, if you have two copies, uh, the, the risk of, of uh, Alzheimer's or, or of the age of onset of, of, uh, of regular Alzheimer's occurs as early as age 68. That's, again, uh, almost a one out of two chance at that age of developing Alzheimer's if you have a double copy. Also, a single copy of APOE, APOE4 uh, translates to about a 500% increased risk. So it's not, not a negligible risk at all. It's a huge increased risk. Again, by understanding the risk factors, we can mitigate that risk dramatically. And if you have a double copy, uh, the, the actual relative risk of developing Alzheimer's goes up to an average based on a meta-analysis of about 1,200%. So these are huge increased risk factors. But again, they're not deterministic. I work with patients every day who have single and double copy of these mutations. And I tell them, if you pay attention to the strategies that I'm going to share with you, you dramatically slow down or potentially stop the progression of your disease. And you can even begin to reverse aspects of the cognitive decline. So lifestyle medicine is still the key by far. Here's an example of, uh, of uh, one, one way of, of analyzing the data from 23andMe or Ancestry.com using an app called MTHFR Support. And you see that, that this uh, APOE4 uh, allele in this patient is a plus minus, meaning they have one copy of the, of the APOE4 and one copy of the APOE3. Again, a 500% increased risk for Alzheimer's. And so that puts people on notice 
Okay, we got to do something about this. Not not when I get severely demented and start dealing with it then, but right now. And so that's why we believe that uh, individuals in their 40s, over the age of 45, when when subjective cognitive decline and, and mild cognitive impairment become more common, about 11% of individuals over the age of 45 have, have some level of cognitive decline. And so we don't want to wait for another 20 years until they have early Alzheimer's just to initiate a strategy. We want to initiate now. And so doing genetic studies is a wonderful way to help people understand what is at risk and what to do about it. Um, I have some patients who just are too afraid to know about their genes because they literally have bought into this to this uh, misunderstanding of genetics that most of us in our training were, were taught that you know genetics is a non-modifiable uh, uh, part of, of disease and and really that's not true as I've already pointed out and so it, we need to be very careful what we tell our patients. That, that because we could literally be stealing hope from them where they're no longer motivated to do anything about their condition when in fact what they do is the biggest part of their risk. Okay, so, um, so, so, so th these, these uh, genetic options are available to pretty much all patients around the world. Uh, we now know that as Professor Marcus uh, Pembry said from the Institute of Child Health, he's a clinical geneticist, he says, we are guardians of our genome. Other, other professors are now saying we, we are to be not victims, but masters of our genome. We literally now, because of the Human Genome Project, understand how to use genomics and genetic mutation information so we can dramatically enhance health, not just tell people we're victims of this genetic disease. Um, so um, it was Cicero who uh, I love his, his, his statement. He's a, a philosopher and orator at the, of the time, at the time of Christ. He's a Roman, Roman philosopher. He said, old age must be resisted and its deficiencies supplied. Well, what a brilliant, wise statement that was. And so I say, based on, on, that, on his insights, that dysfunctional genes must first be detected then supported holistically as broadly as possible, and finally nutrigenomically bypassed in order to supply their nutrient deficiencies. Once again, the genetics, the gene mutations, code for an enzyme or a protein that is now, uh, that is now compromised structurally due to the mutation, that, that compromised structure changes its function. So now function is compromised uh, uh, potentially at a significant level. Many of these mutations, the, 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 the enzyme is compromised by 50 to 70%. And therefore, we need to upregulate up the cofactors, right? The, the minerals and the vitamins that, that we all understand from biochemistry relate to that enzymatic reaction to optimize the KM constant, to optimize the, 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 the flow of that biochemical pathway in a way that minimizes the otherwise significant risk to our health. Okay, so, um, so there's various genes to consider. Okay, all of the, there, there's, there's literally in my reports for patients, I have hundreds of genes that I look at, but here's some of the key ones that impact detoxification, impact methylation, 
Um, let me focus right now on the three. Uh, the, all of these have an indirect or direct relationship to cognitive decline um, uh, if there's mutations in these. So if there's double copy mutations in particular, that's much more serious than a single copy mutation. But, but uh, essentially, the three most important genes uh, on this list, at least, that we need to be aware of that influence cognitive decline is, is number one, the presenilin. Presenilin 1 and 2 gene mutations, these are devastating. In fact, currently, medical scientists and, and um, geneticists believe that the presenilin mutations are 100% are, um, penetrant, meaning that if you have those mutations, that, that, that disease will occur. Now, I, I don't personally buy into that belief because even though I, I certainly agree that those genes are extremely serious, okay, if, if they were truly 100% penetrant, then, then, then they, would be, they would be instant neurologic damage, right? So if this neurologic damage isn't happening until age 30, 40, 50, 60, that means that there's things that we can do to potentially slow that down to limit the expression, uh, the negative influence of that mutation. So that's one for sure that, that is very serious. We've already talked about ApoE4. It's, 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 it's very significant, but not deterministic. It's only deterministic if we don't address the underlying risk factors. And then BDNF, the brain-derived neurotrophic factor, uh, mutations to the ability to properly produce an enzyme also by the same name, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, that releases a substance by the same name that literally heals neurons and synapses, that repairs memory cells. Uh, uh, it's, it's like aloe vera for the brain, right? Uh, it, it doesn't just make you feel better. It actually heals your body. And there's many things that we do uh, that influence the, the effective production of BDNF, even in individuals who have um, severe mutations to those genes and therefore have structural abnormalities in those enzymes. So especially if we have a mutation, we need to be taking advantage of the strategies that enhance brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And first and foremost, there's gonna be exercise. You know, exercise, there's probably more data on how exercise brain-derived neurotrophic factor as a hor hormone-like elixir that literally heals neurons, okay? So, of course, we want to have that at a steady level to repair the, the damage done in the brain by whatever countless unknown risk factors we might be exposed to. But exercising every day, exercising lightly after meals, having strength training exercise, all those powerfully enhance the production of BDNF. So, so be aware of those, those in particular. And there's more information about how to use that information on my website and the other websites mentioned. Okay, so, okay, so then we move from genetics and genetic mutations to actually the expression of the genes themselves, of epigenetics. And, and that's the beauty of lifestyle medicine. Lifestyle medicine operates through the principle of epigenetics, which is the factors that affect the way genes work independent of the genes themselves. It's what literally turns genes on and genes off. And so there's been many papers and articles written about how we can literally turn good genes on and bad genes off. 
Okay, as opposed to what most people in the world are doing is because of their choices, their unhealthful choices and lifestyle and exposures is that they're literally constantly activating or turning on the, the, the cancer-causing genes or the dementia-causing genes, uh, and that while they're literally suppressing or turning down the genes that promote healing and, and health in the body. So, so this is, there, there's a, so much data on, in the medical research on this. The, uh, and then we have the concept of the exposome. And this is, again, where lifestyle medicine shines because the exposome is everything that we're exposed to everything in our lives that in our that that we're exposed to in our environments everything that we eat everything that we that we do uh whether it's exercise or just uh, sitting on the couch uh, uh all evening uh where we live the exposure to pollutants whether we smoke or not whether we consume in sugary foods that are that are clearly based on medical literature, dementogenic in of themselves. Um, are, are we exposed to pesticides? Uh, everything that we eat, that we do, that we say, and that we think influences genetic expression. Uh, Dr. Zeno Charles Marcel gave a wonderful pre uh, plenary session earlier today on this very topic on how we genetic expression is wonderfully transformed just by the things that we do and what we what we say and what we think and what we eat. Okay, so um, if you didn't see that, make sure you take advantage of it. Now, let me give you one example. You know, we, we could spend all day talking about examples like this, but uh, you, you heard Dr. Uh, Roger Schwelt talk about the power of vitamin D and enhancing innate immunity in the body and, and, and literally... Uh, dramatically down-regulating any future potential for, for uh, cytokine storm. I, I can't tell you how many patients and even doctors uh, contacted me at the beginning of the pandemic and says, whoa, 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 you know, be careful with, with vitamin D and all these, all these immune modulating nutrients because they could theoretically, by enhancing your immune system, cause greater cytokine storm. And that was based on basically a, a complete misunderstanding of how the immune system really works. So, so the, these, these vitamin D modulates the immune system so that it doesn't have to go into that final last ditch effort to, to, try, to, to try to kill off the virus uh, unsuccessfully. And in fact, ends up killing the, the host of the virus, the patient in doing so. And so, so vitamin D is critical, and, and, and it's actually one of the most critical, as you learned, uh, nutrients to consume early, but also to consume as soon as you find you have uh, symptoms, okay? So even, this is one of the rare scenarios where even if you've been horribly unhealthy up to the point of being admitted to the hospital with serious symptoms of COVID, uh, if you're given a big enough bolus of vitamin D, at day one of admission, it basically, uh, the, at least in the study, the, the randomized study done in Spain, the, the University of Cordoba, uh, that none of them died. And only 2% went on to, to, uh, to ICU uh, and requiring a ventilator compared to 50% of those randomized to the no vitamin D group. I mean, and, 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 a, and, a, and a portion of them dying. So, 
So vitamin D is, is a wonderful uh, natural medicine available to all of us. And of course, its biggest source is being in the sunlight. Now be, be really careful here because not only is this related to Alzheimer's as this slide showed, okay? Remember what I said at the beginning, if you optimize your immune system properly, you're basically doing the th best thing possible for your brain. Okay, so here's in this study, the journal Neurology in 2014, they found that e even mild vitamin D deficiency resulted in a 51% increased risk for dementia or 125% increased risk if the blood uh, vitamin D levels were very low. So, so, I mean, it's such a simple thing to optimize vitamin D. Now, a lot of people say, well, if you just go outside in the sun, you're going to have all the vitamin D you want. And let me just tell you, as much as I wish that were true, it's just simply not true. I know because I've been testing vitamin D in every single patient uh, for the last 20 years, ever since that famous Harvard physician did the study on vitamin D blood levels and cancer risk and found that the, the low levels of vitamin D in your blood were more likely to cause cancer or lead to cancer than whether you smoked or not. Literally what his studies showed, uh, and, and he was using the same data sets that showed that smoking caused cancer. So, so this is very important to understand that we got to optimize vitamin D and, and just simply being out in the sun on a regular basis, especially for older individuals, is, is not likely to work, okay? I'm all about sun exposure. I, I'm not one of those that say stay out of the sun. I want you to be in the sun, but especially right now in the wintertime, okay? If you're above 37, uh, uh, 37 degrees parallel in the world, you're, 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 you're not making any vitamin D for about five months, even if you're in the sun all day long, okay? The, the, here's how you figure it out. We call it the sun shadow standard. Okay, the, the sun shadow standard is when you go outside and, you, and you, you see where the sun is, okay, and then you look at your shadow. If your shadow is longer than you are tall, you're making zero vitamin D. Even if it's really warm, if it's 90 degrees out and you're sweating, you're making no vitamin D. The vitamin D production is based on the angle of the sun and the ultraviolet radiation, the photon hitting that that cholesterol precursor and transforming it into vitamin D. That has to be a 45 degree angle or higher, or you're essentially not making any significant amount of vitamin D. So, so I wanted to tie that in. Vitamin D is critical for your immune system. It's also critical for the brain. And it's one of the early tests that we should test on every single patient um, to, to, to document the, the impact of uh, to, to improve the risk associated with, with Alzheimer's. So interesting enough, the very same month that this journal article came out in the journal Neurology, another journal published a, a opinion piece by a physician saying we should not be checking vitamin D in anybody anymore. There's really no evidence for it. I'm going like, what rock did this guy crawl out of? You know, it's, it's, there, there's such a back, there's such a problem in, in the medical system suggesting that vitamin D really isn't that helpful, even though there's more evidence on the value of vitamin D in protecting us than really any other any medication, especially for COVID, right? Uh, so um, there's more evidence on how vitamin D protects against cancer than there is on a clinical evidence and, and research-based evidence than on the, the relationship between smoking and cancer. 
So we got to start paying attention to the actual evidence and, and uh, not always wait for that double randomized placebo controlled study, uh, which oftentimes doesn't happen in the field of lifestyle medicine. It, it can't happen effectively. Uh, okay, so, um, so let's, 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 uh, let's look at a, a, a couple uh, a couple key things here. So, so here's, here's, uh, here's some principle from uh, do, uh, uh, Dr. Sid Baker, who's retired uh, professor from Yale University School of Medicine. He called it the thumbtack rules. He's like the Roman Rockwell or Norman Rockwell rather of, of medicine. And he says, if you're sitting on a tax, it's going to take a lot of aspirin to make you feel good. <laughs> if you're sitting on two tacks, however, removing just one doesn't make you 50% better. Okay, and so the, the 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 bottom line is is that you you you're not going to reverse or a, a cognitive problem if you just address one of the thumbtacks that you're sitting on. And in in dementia, in cognitive decline, there are dozens and dozens of thumbtacks that we're sitting on, and we have to find as many of those as possible to be effective. Okay, so uh, optimal health. Uh, and potential to heal requires that we provide all the necessary elements to optimize the system and remove the interfering elements. Okay, nutrients are the necessary elements and toxins are the interfering elements. So these are the two broadest categories that we must properly assess in every patient in the broadest way possible if we're going to be successful. We know Hippocrates who said, let foods be your medicine and medicines be your food. Now, that we again, we could spend hours on that concept alone, but let me say this: um, that this, this is actually a slide uh, uh, by Doctor uh, by Brenda Davis, a dietitian in Canada, who's who's one of the smartest and, and most uh, knowledgeable dietitians in the world. She's written dozens of books, and she actually uh, I had the privilege to work with her on the reversing diabetes project in the Marshall Islands um, uh, that that, um, that uh, was run some years ago uh, with Dr. Kelly and others. And, and we learned really early on as we were treating diabetics that we had to be very careful what type of whole grain we use with those diabetics because we're checking blood sugars after every meal at one and two hours postprandially. And even intact whole grains, the healthiest form of whole grains, we had to limit that in our hardcore diabetics Otherwise, we'd end up with blood sugars over 300 post, postprandially. Okay, so you, we need to understand that all whole grains are not created equal. Dr. Zeno Charles Marcel said earlier, all carbohydrates are not created equal, but neither are all whole grains. And that's where a lot of people have totally missed the boat that, you know, puffed whole grains are at the bottom of the hierarchy of whole grains. They're, they're going to shoot blood sugars up considerably more than intact whole grains. And you see this whole hierarchy here. Uh, flaked whole grains, like cold flake cereals, diabetics or pre-diabetics or people with significant insulin resistance should absolutely stay away from flaked whole grains and puffed whole grains, okay? And, and should greatly limit their exposure to ground whole grains, which means even breads, whole grain breads, why? Well, all you got to do as a clinician is check their blood sugars one or two hours after a meal consuming that, and you'll see the impact that that has, which puts further strain on the beta cells of the pancreas, leading to pancreatic failure and, and problems with, with blood sugar optimization in the future. So these issues must be addressed, especially in uh, Alzheimer's risk patients, 
uh, because Alzheimer's disease, the, the, the most common metabolic driver of Alzheimer's disease is insulin resistance. And eating the wrong whole grains will add to the insulin resistance uh, uh, scenario significantly. Okay. And so, so you see this line, this line, this line in the sand, so to speak, is that uh, uh, Brenda Davis, and I totally agree with this, is that diabetics or at-risk individuals should avoid whole grains under this line. And, and so like rolled oats, barley, and rye, rolled whole grains, those are okay, but they're not as good as broken whole grains, like 12-grain cereal bulgur. And, and even the best would be the, the, like the whole berries, the oat groats, which is the full oat berry. It's wonderful. It tastes wonderful. And even these need to be moderated in somebody with diabetes and, you know, by checking blood sugars. Uh, by the way, there's a great lecture series that just came out as a resource by the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, just came out in September of 2020, 18-hour uh, CME course on how to reverse type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance with lifestyle medicine. Okay, and, and uh, uh, I talk about the challenge of even being able to say you can reverse type 2 diabetes because I've been doing it for 30 years and only in the last few years have, you, have, have we been able to say that with, uh, with backing from the international societies uh, re, uh, regarding diabetes. So, so anyways, that, that's a great resource that would dramatically lessen, by following those strategies, we dramatically lessen the progression of cognitive decline in many individuals. Okay, so um, the the um, uh, let me let me uh, let me fo basically focus on some principles here. So remember, the, there's resources available beyond this talk, and, and my goal is to whet your appetite to to make sure that you have a keen understanding of what is possible, and and so. This, this all started in my experience and in, in my practice when I read Dr. Del Bredesen's uh, uh, amazing paper in the journal Aging, 2014, on reversal of cognitive decline. And, and here are basically the key principles that we want to outline. Okay, first of all, in order to get effective improvements in Alzheimer's, yes, improvements in Alzheimer's, we first must have to address all the underlying causes of the disease. Otherwise, we're not gonna, we're not gonna get any results. And that's why here to date, uh, we, we have not seen significant results in the normal everyday practice in treating Alzheimer's patients because we're not addressing the actual problems that, that drive the pathophysiology. Okay, so, so we must address the underlying um, the underlying causes of disease and focus on combination strategies, a comprehensive network-based synergistic approach. Okay. It will be necessary to target multiple pathways at the same time. Okay. In order to affect an improvement in symptoms and pathophysiology. And the goal is not simply to normalize metabolic par parameters. So, so you, you physicians and healthcare uh, workers, that are used to just looking at normals on, on, on lab reference levels, that's not good enough because that represents 95% of, 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 of the population. You're not going to get reversal by just getting people into normal reference ranges. You got to optimize. You got to ask yourself the question, what, uh, what do the healthiest individuals have on this lab work? And that's what we shoot for. And so, um, 
And, and you can see that, that there's, so that you got to do comprehensive testing, uh, laboratory testing to be able to find out what to do, right? Otherwise you're just treating people based on assumption. You need to f- you figure out what individually on a personalized level is going to be most effective for them. And so all these labs that are, that are listed here that I won't go over, they're, they're not only on their website, but they're on, in the, on the Memory Makeover book, page 83 and 84, uh, discussed in detail. So there's lots of labs that look at inflammation, that look at hormones, that look at cardiovascular uh, risk factors, look at omega-6-3 uh, ratios. Um, there's, there's labs that look at the LDL particle number, lipoprotein little a, uh, LP little a, the, the plaque test, uh, basically, and then a test that, that a lot of doctors, maybe if you're my age or older, if you're over 60, uh, uh, you, you may have known that this was practiced in, in years past, but then it, it, it kind of fell out of use because it was a laborious test. Well, let me tell you something, this four-hour glucose tolerance test where you add a fasting insulin, a one and two hour insulin and cortisol levels is a, is a way to really ascertain the three most important drivers of cognitive decline from a metabolic standpoint. And that is high blood sugars, high insulin production throughout the day and after meals and low blood sugar tendencies or reactive hypoglycemia, all three of which have a powerful influence on cognitive decline. Uh, and, and let me briefly say this. So, so number one, a high blood sugar is naturally going to cause dramatic increases in AGEs, the advanced glycolytic end products, that, that basically damage enzymes and damage the ability of the brain to detoxify itself and actually damage the neurons directly, okay, uh, creating oxidative stress and, and, and damage to to the, the hippocampal neurons, et cetera. So high blood sugars are very bad for cog- cognitive function. They increase production of beta amyloid plaques and so forth. So that's, that's one reason we gotta control blood sugars. Number two, high insulin production, the body's attempt to try to control blood sugars actually has a major downside. And that is that when you're producing a lot of insulin, insulin has to be degraded by insulin degrading enzyme. Well, that's the very enzyme that's primary role is to remove beta amyloid plaque from the brain. And so if you are insulin resistant all the time because of, uh, because of a bad diet, a lack of exercise, et cetera, you're going to have a significant uh, uh, defect in your ability to detoxify beta amyloid plaques that are oxidized and causing damage to the neuron. So um, uh, Dr. Schwelt would be the first to, to uh, mention that copper zinc ratios are huge with the immune system. They're huge with cardiovascular health, and they're also huge with neurologic conditions and even psychiatric conditions. A lot, there's a lot that goes into copper zinc and measuring ceruloplasmin. So if you wanna learn more about that, there's more information of that in other lectures. Um, so, so basically, uh, and then, and then finally, just somebody being exposed in their home to a water damaged area, kitchen, a kitchen that's leaking, uh, uh, water in the sink, creating a mold that's being generated and mycotoxins that generate from that, or, or a, a leak in a master bathroom or in a wall somewhere. These are huge issues. 
if you're paying attention to the Old Testament, okay, there's a lot of information about mold. If you pay any attention to their, their spirit of prophecy writings and Ellen White's health message where she talks a lot about mildew and mold and how thousands of people die prematurely because of their exposures to it. This is something that is generally avoided in, 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 in most uh, specialties of medicine. And I'm here to tell you, it's a huge part of protecting the brain. We need to make sure that the appropriate tests are done for people, especially those who already have a diagnosis of significant cognitive impairment. Okay, so um, so the um, the the bottom line is that is that just as in other chronic diseases, the goal is to reach a threshold effect such that once enough of the underlying causal factors are impacted the pathological process would be halted or even reversed. Now, uh, real quickly here, there are co commonly, there's three main areas that I mentioned earlier about the continuum of cognitive decline. Subjective is where you test well, but, uh, uh, and other people don't necessarily notice it, but you know, as an individual, you're not what you used to be. You're not as sharp as you used to be. You, you're more forgetful, even though, even though people don't really notice that. Mild cognitive decline, you can actually measure with a, with a neuropsychiatric uh, test, um, like the Montreal Cognitive Assessment Form, for instance. And, and same with Alzheimer's disease is not only testing, but the loss of actual function. Where, where people are not able to do the things they normally were able to do uh, as part of their daily activities. So, so you have the, here's an example of neuropsychological testing in the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, okay? Um, and then there's the different scoring systems that are associated with that, um, that, that can be used as one more assessment to see if people are getting better or they're stabilizing. Typically people progress and they have lower and lower numbers on those tests. But in my experience, if they address the underlying issues, they're able to maintain, stop progression, okay? At minimum, our goal is to slow progression, okay? And our main goal is to ultimately help reverse aspects of cognitive decline in some way. And in our experience, when people are, are willing to follow the, the broad strategies of lifestyle medicine, that about 80% of the time, we're able to document reversal of at least certain aspects of cognitive decline. And, and let, me, let me suggest that, that I loved what Dr. Schwelt said about, about getting to bed early, before midnight, that the, the production of melatonin is, is optimal in the hours before midnight compared to the uh, uh, hours after midnight. And here's a study from 2015 that showed that late bedtime is associated with decreased hippocampal volume, even in young, healthy subjects. So just think how damaging late bedtime would be to people who are already struggling with cognitive decline. And you see the direct line relationship there with that. Also, we know that sleep disruption has been ultimately shown to impact a full one third of a person's genome. We're talking about uh, about 7,000 genes have been shown to be disrupted in their expression and their epigenetic expression simply because of sleep disruption. So 
Sleep is critical for the immune system, but it's also critical for the brain. And in fact, last slide relative to sleep, this is by Dr. Nedegaard at the University of Rochester who showed that the byproducts of daytime brain function must be detoxified at night. That's the only time you can get effective brain defragging or detoxification is at night where the actual glymphatic system of the brain uh, basically detoxifies the, the even beta amyloid is detoxified at night as the hemispheres literally contract to get rid of toxins here. So, so that's very, very powerful. Now, the, the, the main principle that I wanted to point out that I have been pointing out throughout is that Alzheimer's disease is actually a type of diabetes. It's an insulin resistance of the brain for the most part, not always, but for the, what most of the cases are, and, and is a case where, uh, where Alzheimer's disease, again, can be referred to as type 3 diabetes. And this is done by uh, work in 1995. Dr. Suzanne de Lamont, a neuropathologist at Brown, was able to show that the, the, the neurons of Alzheimer's patients were extremely resistant to insulin. Okay, so the, the, the key here is, is, uh, is, is, is uh, understanding that, that one of the key, most uh, powerful tests for diagnosing Alzheimer's is doing a PET scan with fluoroxydeglucose, uh, uh, fluoro deoxyglucose rather. And, and essentially what this PET scan is doing is, is monitoring whether this uh, this tagged glucose molecule is getting into the brain. And when it doesn't get into the brain, that's called hypo, uh, 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 it's, it's, it's basically a hypometabolism, a decreased metabolism of sugar into the brain, essentially an insulin resistance of the brain. Now, Medicare and most insurance companies are not going to cover this test. It costs thousands of dollars. But the, the poor man's test, that, that really does a good job to determine whether you have an insulin resistant problem is the four hour glucose tolerance test. So, so I, I, uh, I, I was gonna do a full case study on this, but I'm just gonna show this part of the case study for a, a gentleman who had a near photographic memory who was starting to lose his memory, okay? He had prediabetes. Uh, his, 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 in his four-hour glucose tolerance test, his blood sugar went up to 287, which means it's not getting into the cells. So his, his body is severely insulin resistant. His fasting insulin level was 14, and optimally you want it under five, at least under 10. And so he was insulin resistant even at baseline. And so that this test indicated that for Dan, one of his main drivers of of cognitive decline was blood sugar imbalances and very high postprandial insulin levels uh, as, as well. Um, okay, so let me just finish with a couple other uh, slides here. Uh, and this is a study uh, that was presented, uh, done by uh, UCLA researchers in 2016. And they found that fructose, basically any form of refined sugar, but in particular high fructose corn syrup uh, basically changed the expressions of hundreds of genes that relate to cognitive function. And, and essentially, this was uh, 
this was a, a, a study that looked at rats who had been trained to, to get through a maze, to, to, to successfully get through a maze. And then once they were trained to do that, they were given six weeks of water that was laced with fructose, basically soda. Okay. And, and after those six weeks of exposure to this uh, high fructose corn syrup, they were put in that same maze and the, the, the rats that were exposed to the, to the fructose, they actually, it took them twice as long to get through the maze as those who had just been drinking water uh, had been randomized to water during that phase. Um, so, so that was a very powerful sign that sugar is a dementogen, that high fructose corn syrup. I'm not talking about fruit here. I'm talking about exposure to high amounts of sugar and refined carbohydrates like like the world gets exposed to on a regular basis okay that's very dementogenic okay and and what they also found is that if they added omega-3 fatty acids in the form of dha that that actually helped minimize the damage done by the by the sugar excuse me now that doesn't mean that as long as you get plenty of dha you can have all the sugar you want the point is we got to take advantage of every, every uh, strategy that is shown to be beneficial to the brain. Number one, stay away from sugar. That's the most important dietary recommendation you can give anybody is to greatly cut back on sugar and refined carbohydrates because of how they impact uh, blood sugars, insulin levels, and hypoglycemic reactions. Okay, and then optimize DHEA. Everybody should optimize DHEA. And there's various ways that can be done, including the use of microalgae-based vegetarian, uh, vegan capsules of DHEA. Um, so the, uh, as, as I've practiced now, uh, primarily in helping people who have varying levels of uh, cognitive decline, okay, I, I have learned something. And that is, and any neurologist could tell you this, is that patients have good days and bad days. In other words, dementia isn't just a state of where you're at that can't be modulated. Uh, the, the functional aspects of cognitive uh, activity fluctuate widely from day to day and from meal to meal, okay? And so that tells us that there's specific things that, that cause what we call a temporary cognitive impairment. So that's that's really how I define at least this aspect of dementia. It's a, a temporary cognitive impairment associated with acute exposure to one or more dementogens, whether it's toxins, whether it's sugar, whether it's a lack of sunshine, the lack of fresh air, the lack of exercise, the wrong exposome. It, it, it would be a good way to define that. If you're not taking care of, of, of your environment and the choices that you make, those become dementogenic uh, 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 stresses on your body, and you're more likely to exhibit symptoms of dementia, especially after you've lost so many hippocampal brain cells that no you don't longer have the reserve capacity uh, to, to function properly. So even people who don't notice cognitive decline, they are getting a damage to their hippocampus on a daily basis. You can lose a 1,000 hippocampal brain cells a day when you're exposed to dementogens on a regular basis. Okay, you can regain or, or make, okay, uh, about 700 or more hippocampal brain cells a day 
if you get on the right comprehensive strategy. That gives individuals hope. So, um, so, so, um, so, the, so these dementogens that collectively cross a threshold level leading to decreased functionality and judgment, okay, um, and uh, communication, organization, and the normal functions of daily aging. Um, all right, so okay, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and just uh, address uh, one more set of, of studies on alcohol, okay, because I think this is really important to understand because we're getting a lot of misguided information about some of these things, uh, and then we'll take some of your questions and, and address those. Uh, a year ago, uh, in 2019, around October, I was flying to Washington State to give a lecture similar to this uh, at Walla Walla, and, um, and I, I, I found this in the bookstore of the, of the airport. It says, the science of Alzheimer's, what it is, how it touches us, and hope. And so I'm all about hope and giving patients hope. So I said, I got this, I got this, and I said, and, and here was the first hope provided in this in this uh in, in this basically time edition special time edition and i was i was really discouraged by this because here's more good health news for drinkers okay and it went on to kind of spin the idea of moderate drinking as not only something that protects against cardiovascular disease which we know is false it's not true at all uh, the, the actual good studies show that that's not true at all. Uh, even, even an occasional drink increases the risk for cancer, but that somehow didn't make it, <laughs> didn't make it into this write-up. Uh, but then they, they spun this information as that drinking uh, one or two drinks a day would actually be good for your brain. Okay? There, there's a lot of opinion pieces in particular in medical journals that suggest that. Okay, and, and of course, people who like to drink like to read articles like that, whether it's in, in Time Magazine or in a, in a medical journal as an opinion piece. So, so let's actually look at the best study done to date on this topic, published in the British Medical Journal 2017, uh, where they actually, they actually looked at a 30-year longitudinal study based on MR, brain MRIs, okay, uh, in, in individuals that had a higher socioeconomic status that are less likely to get uh, cognitive decline. And here's what they found, that a higher consumption of alcohol over the 30-year follow-up was associated with increased odds of hippocampal atrophy, which is basically senility of that organ. Senility just means atrophy of whatever organ you're talking about. So you can get senility of your muscles, which also leads to senility of the brain, by the way, uh, as an early indicator. Uh, but you can get senility of the hippocampus, which means that your ability to function cognitively is greatly impaired. Okay. And it was at a dose-dependent fashion. Okay. So let, let's actually take a look at this. If they had more than one to two drinks a day, there wasn't just a 30% increased risk. There wasn't just a 100% increased risk. There was a 580% increased risk of hippocampal atrophy during that 30-year study based on MRI scans of the brain. Okay. Now, well, what about moderate drinking? You know, te te technically or medically speaking, we say one to two drinks 
up to one to two drinks a day is considered moderate consumption of alcohol. They had a 340% increased risk of, of hippocampal atrophy. Okay, and they also found no protective benefit for even the occasional drink. 30-year study MRI uh, scan based. Okay, so uh, who, are, who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe some Time Magazine editorial that is spinning the research the way it wants to? Or are you going to believe one of the best studies ever done to date on this topic? And so, so we need to we need to educate ourselves about this because even many of us, okay, uh, have maybe bought in to, to this misguided notion that, that occasional alcohol consumption really isn't that bad of a thing or moderate drinking, you know, might actually be protective. And, and, and the, the actual best research um, does not support that at all. And in fact, I could give you case study after case study of my own patients who learned this, that this was really important. And so we as, as health professionals need to share this message, you know, uh, that, that this is one more way that they can greatly limit their, uh, their personal risk for a cognitive decline. Uh, so let me end with this quote by Herbert, uh, a pres past president of the United States, Herbert Hoover, who says, wisdom consists not so much in knowing what to do in the ultimate as in knowing what to do next. And so there's a lot of things we didn't cover. There's a lot of things I would have liked to have covered here, but we went, we, we were fortunate. We got extra time to, re to review more things. There's all kinds of resources available to you that I've already mentioned at the beginning of this presentation. Um, and I encourage you as health professionals who have a passion for, for sharing lifestyle medicine principles and, and, and the appropriate spiritual principles with individuals to, to, to really figure out how to incorporate these various laboratory tests and, and perspectives with your patients. And if you do so, you're going to see some amazing things occurring in your patients. Let's just pause for a word of prayer, uh, thanking God for, for access to these type of principles. Dear Lord, uh, I thank you for the privilege of being able to present these principles that I have learned over the years uh, and, and how uh, we as clinicians have the opportunity to, uh, to give patients hope to give them specific strategies that if done collectively and, and simultaneously can powerful improve their health at minimum slowing down the progression of disease and oftentimes stopping the progression and many times helping reverse aspects of that cognitive decline. I just pray, Lord, that you send your Holy Spirit to each one of us to, to, to impress upon us how we can incorporate these strategies in our practice how we can pray with our patients, how we can show them the power of forgiveness and, and, and proper emotions and how that can be part of this healing process as well. And so we, I thank you for uh, the privilege of being a part of this group, this group that has, been, that has been challenged by you to spread the message, to be a type of John the Baptist, to, so, that, so that our voice will be clearly heard even from the wilderness that there is hope and that there, there, that you are coming again soon. And uh, we want to prepare people so that they can cognitively and effectively choose you 
as their Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Dr. Youngberg, on behalf of Amen, I just wanted to say thank you very much for that excellent presentation. I know you might handle some questions now, but before you did that, I just wanted to say thank you very much. That was very, very good. So thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. McNulty. And, uh, and uh, if, you would, uh, if you want to moderate the questions or if you've been reading maybe some of these questions and, and you're aware of what some of the key questions are, do you, do you want to you want to just uh, do that or do you want me to just kind of go through the I mean there was one other question it was kind of related to sunlight and vitamin D the question was isn't sun um, sun exposure early morning and later afternoon recommended to avoid dangerous UV rays to avoid skin cancer yeah all right great that's a great question and uh, so I, I could tell that the, that the brain is thinking on this now the the, the, the bottom line is this. Sunlight is good for so many things. Sunlight improves immune system through multiple pathways, not just through vitamin D. Okay, so I want to make that very clear. Uh, the, the forest bathing, uh, walking in nature, as Dr. Schwelt mentioned earlier, is, uh, is, is something that dramatically enhances uh, uh, innate immune function, uh, irrespective of its impact on vitamin D. And so let me just restate that if you're outside and, and, you, and you look at your shadow uh, and your shadow is longer than you are tall, you're essentially not making vitamin D. That's why in the majority of the, well, in the, yeah, in the majority of the, uh, of the Western world, so to speak, uh, uh, during the fall, winter months, we're making zero vitamin D, even if the sun is shining all day, even if we're outside working in the garden all day. We're not making vitamin D, okay? Because uh, for reasons I already mentioned. So, so my point is, yes, we need to protect our body from uh, excessive ultraviolet radiation that would cause burning or or, or damage to the skin. I mean, that's prudence dictates that, okay? But um, but you can get ten to fifteen minutes of a midday sun uh, if the sun is above forty five degrees angle on on legs and arms, on the back, whatever, and that will generate vitamin D in most people, but, but very little in elderly. Even when I was in my 40s, 20 years ago, and I was walking the beaches of Guam every afternoon, my vitamin D was low. I was in ba bathing trunks, and, and that's when I learned about vitamin D about 20 years ago, being so critical and started measuring it in every patient. And, and I had low levels of vitamin D, and I was living in Guam when the sun shines every day. Okay, and I was getting sun every day. So, so don't buy into this idea that, that being in the sun even midday is enough to optimize your vitamin D because my clinical experience, I wish, I, I wish this wasn't true, but my experience is that it doesn't work that way. Sunlight morning and evening powerfully alters hormones. It dramatically increases uh, uh, health in many ways, but it's not going to raise your vitamin D level. So that's why we have to have multiple strategies that we're doing simultaneously and not think that, well, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I, I'm, I, I get outside into the sunlight every day and I get a little bit of exercise and, and I'm, I'm, I'm eating more of a plant-based diet and that that's all I need to do. As important as those things are, they're, they're generally not enough of the, uh, by themselves. They're not sufficient 
we would say epidemiologic speaks. They're necessary, but not sufficient. We need to broaden our armamentarium of strategies to, in order to actually show what has been previously thought to be unobtainable, and that is reversal of cognitive decline. Very good. So, I mean, that's all the questions that we have. So thank you so much, Dr. Youngberg. And there were many comments expressing appreciation for the excellent presentation in the chat section. So people were very informed and blessed, and we're just so thankful that you were able to share what you shared with us today. And so continued blessings in the work that you're doing. Well, th thank you again, uh, Dr. McNulty, for you know the uh, the opportunity to share this. And and as a neurologist yourself, I I appreciate the fact that you were that you were open and, and eager to have this presented. Uh, some neurologists are not so eager to have it presented, uh, but I uh, appreciate all that you do and all of the presentations that you have done that have touched my life so much. Uh, I, again, I thank you for the time and the effort that you put into your work in your presentations uh, on both a uh, medical and spiritual level. So, so uh, uh, thank you all for, for participating in this presentation. And I, I think I covered all, all the questions that I needed to, uh, that, that I needed to relative to the test questions. And so may God bless all of you as you take advantage of this information and apply it to your own practices. Thank you all. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.